Welcome to Changemakers, a podcast from APH. We're talking to people from around the world who are creating positive change in the lives of people who are blind or have low vision. Here's your host. Hello and welcome to Changemakers. I'm APH's Public Relations Manager, Sarah Brown, and on this episode of Changemakers, we're taking it to Washington, D.C. I'm going to hand this episode over to Paul Schrader, that's APH's Vice President of Impact and Outreach. He's going to talk about the latest news from Capitol Hill in regards to accessibility, APH's recent testimony before the Labor, Health, and Human Services Appropriations Subcommittee, and what you can do to stay involved and make a difference. Take it away, Paul. This is Paul Schrader, the American Printing House for the Blind Vice President for Impact and Outreach. Very excited to start what I hope will be an occasional series of updates on activities in Washington, D.C. that affect the blindness and low vision communities, and particularly with a focus on policy. Very pleased to start this with my colleagues from the National Federation of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind to talk about two legislative policy areas that uh, priorities that are priorities for both organizations for 2023. I'm going to start to have John Pere introduce himself, who's with the National Federation of the Blind. Welcome, John. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I said, this is John Perre. I'm the Executive Director for Advocacy and Policy and look forward to our discussion. Thank you so much, John. I'm also glad to be joined by Clark Rockfall, who's with the American Council of the Blind. Clark. Good morning, Paul, and thank you so much for having ACB as a part of this podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Clark Rockfall. I'm the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. I've been in this role for over four years now, based out of our national office in Alexandria, Virginia. Great to have a couple of good good policy hands with me on the podcast. I want to start with the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. This is something that I think our entire community is quite excited about. It's an area of uh, certainly a great deal of accessibility challenges, both in terms of the websites, as well as the applications that we use on a regular basis. And there really are a couple of components to this that I wanna touch on. One of course is the legislation. The other uh, area I'm hoping we can get a quick update on is the regulatory front, uh, because they're they're sort of moving on separate paths for the moment. Uh, If of course the legislation passes, it will spawn its own set of regulations, but we'll clarify all this in just a second. Clark, I'm gonna start with you to just quickly explain what is this Website and Software Accessibility Act? Thanks, Paul. So the the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act is a legislative imperative for the American Council of the Blind. It's a priority that's shared by our partners at NFB, as well as the American Foundation for the Blind. And uh, as you stated, many organizations and individuals across the disability community. Um, So, Paul, you kind of to jump the gun on me a little bit because I was, typically what I start by saying is that uh, this bill you know, underlines or codifies what we what we in the community all already know that the inaccessibility of websites, software applications, online services this poses a tremendous barrier to education, 
employment, and really full inclusion for people who are blind and low vision. In the employment setting, you could have inaccessible uh, HR or business management systems in the classroom, inaccessible e-learning platforms. And what this legislation would do is create enforceable regulations to say, yes, in fact, that is against the law. And it would give uh, legal recourse to people with disabilities, as well as covered entities, um, those Entities that under the Americans with Disabilities Act are obligated to make their goods, services, systems accessible to people with disabilities, it would give them recourse against the, uh, the commercial providers of this technology as well. Because far too often at advocacy organizations and when talking to individuals, we hear uh, folks share stories from their employer, from a, a business or a place of com- public accommodation that uh, we would love to make our system accessible or we thought we had an accessible system. Uh, but the the vendor, the third party, uh, can't do it or won't do it. So this would provide recourse to, to reach those third party providers of the technology to ensure that accessibility is part of the conversation from the beginning and not an afterthought. And we're going to probably be digging into this a couple of times, I would imagine, uh, not just on this podcast, but on future podcasts, because there is a lot to unpack. But let me come to you, John, for a second, because I I alluded and Clark alluded to the fact that this isn't a new issue. There have been many, many, many lawsuits under the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, citing web accessibility as an area um, and and a a complaint. Um, And there have been court settlements and cases. And in fact, uh, I think probably both organizations have been involved in some of these suits. So, John, can you unpack a little bit um, more the distinction? So we, there's a piece of legislation, this one that we've just started to talk about, and there's also a regulatory path. Um, and I want to try to help unscramble this a little bit for folks who might be confused about what's what's what. So there's a, there, is a, there is an Americans with Disabilities Act path that already uh, has been explored to cover website accessibility, and now we have this legislation. So maybe you could help us unpack that a little bit. Sure. Uh- Very happy to do that and thrilled to be here. So the Americans with Disabilities Act, certainly our organization, the National Federation of Blind and and both of you would say applies to uh, websites and software applications. So uh, Title II, which applies to state and local government, we would say that the ADA requires that state and local government websites and software applications be accessible to people with disabilities, including non-visual accessibility. Uh, The same for Title III, which applies to places of public accommodation. Now, companies have said that it is maybe challenging for them to be compliant, uh, not always disagreeing that it's the law, because there aren't very specific regulations about exactly what accessibility means. Uh, That's because the Department of Justice has never put out a regulation for defining exactly what someone, a company or entity or state or local government needs to do to be compliant with the 
Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, the good news is, at least for Title II, the Department of Justice has announced that they plan to put out uh, a bit. It's taken quite some time, but they are putting out a notice of proposed rulemaking. In effect, think of that as a draft rule and think of rule and regulation as synonymous. So they'll be saying, here's exactly what a company or in this case, state or local government needs to do to be compliant. Folks will then have an opportunity to comment. This is both state and local government could com comment and anyone else here in the United States can comment. And then shortly after that, they'd put out the final rule or final regulation, those being synonymous, that would say exactly what state and local uh, governments need to do. It's unfortunate that they have not announced plans yet to do Title III, which would apply to places of public accommodation. So that's where, as Clark was describing, the Website and Software Applications Accessibility Act could help come into play. We certainly want the Title III uh, regulations regarding uh, the ADA, but there isn't a specific regulatory schedule called out in the ADA for such regulations. The Website and Software Applications Bill would call out for a specific regulation and, in fact, would, would help create a statutory definition of accessibility as it applies to websites and software applications, which, which doesn't currently exist. Some folks might think, well, are these in competition or are they complementary? Well, they're complementary. So we, along with 180 plus other organizations, uh, have urged the DOJ to move forward with Title II and Title III regulations as they apply to the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we're also urging Congress to move forward with this legislation because while there's some overlap, uh, there are a number of uh, small differences or just differences that that Clark uh, described, for example, with third-party uh, responsibilities that we think makes it important to do both of these things. We're going to try to make sure we provide some some links in the in the notes so people can track down a little bit more information on this. Some people might know that there, of course, is something called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines delivered by the W3 Consortium. And of course, Section 508, which is a separate law that applies to government procurement, federal government procurement of technology, but it does include uh, web accessibility uh, requirements. So th th I think the point you were likely making um, is that th it's not as though this area isn't known. Unfortunately, it just hasn't been spelled out under ADA in terms of what, what rules and what guidelines apply. Agreed. The, um, I want to uh, just close this portion because, as I said, we're going to probably come back to this. The uh, Clark, the act has not been introduced in this session of Congress. 
Um, as regular listeners know, uh, every two years, Congress gets a new session. Uh, at the end of the last session, which closed at the end of 2022, uh, this act was introduced uh, as kind of a, a, a what sometimes they call a message bill, but uh, but, uh, but a bill that, that sort of created uh, to, to get people to the table talking about it. Well, you can say more about it, but what are the what are the prospects for introduction this year and what can what can people do if they're interested? Thanks, Paul. We are uh, our organizations are working diligently on bill reintroduction. We're having conversations with our partners in the the disability community, as well as our corporate partners. And we are continuing to work with the offices of Senator Tammy Duckworth, as well as Representative uh, Sarbanes in the in the House from uh, Democrat from Maryland for bill reintroduction here in the 118th Congress. If folks would like to learn more, uh, you can always visit the ACB website. Um, as well as the NFB website. And uh, you can check out the, the bills from the 117th Congress. So that was S4998 in the Senate and HR9021 in the House of Representatives. And I mean, here we are all, all blindness organizations, right? But this bill has, this legislation has broad support. Last year when it was introduced, there were over 20 organizations from the cross-disability community representing uh, people with all types of disabilities, not just blindness, but uh, hearing, speech, cognitive, dexterity, mobility, impairments, so across the board. Now there are over 140 organizations at the national, state, and local level supporting this bill. So as we will continue to work to build support as we work towards bill introductions. If folks are interested to learn more or to uh, want to know how they can support this legislation, you can always reach out to the American Council of the Blind by emailing advocacy at acb.org. We have information about this legislation, again, on our website. And you can always contact your member of Congress to let them know that this is a priority for you, that this legislation uh, is, is necessary it should be passed and turned into uh, into law, um, because Paul, as, as you just stated, it, the Americans with Disabilities Act, we certainly believe it applies. But the ADA was passed in 1990, and here we are in 2023. So rather than waiting another 30 years for regulations to be implemented. Uh, enforcing the ADA for websites and software applications. We need to pass the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, uh, which has a, a tight regulatory timeline for action by the Department of Justice and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And one other point on this, Clark, uh, you say software applications is part of this. Does that include mobile apps, the things we use on our smartphones? It does include applications, uh, so whether it's mobile applications, desktop applications. Uh, I'd, I'd refer folks to the bill. There are definitions included. Uh, in many cases, the definitions mirror those of the ADA, as well as the web content accessibility guidelines. 
um, and other international standards, as well as uh, regulatory frameworks. But there are aspects of the bill that are that are new as well. So I'd refer folks to the the findings in the bill, as well as the definitions. Uh, one final point that I'll make, um, you know, we, we touched on WCAG just a little bit, uh, Section 508, uh, which are the, the standards for federal government. One other area that makes this bill really interesting for people with disabilities is that it doesn't codify a single standard or guideline into law. Um, because again, the ADA was passed 30 years ago. We don't want a rigid standard in place for 30 years as technology evolves and people with disabilities are left behind. So this bill creates a functional definition of accessibility, uh, much like the, the ADA has the definition for effective communication. You know, the, the law doesn't say how you must provide effective communication. This legislation doesn't uh, tell businesses or covered entities how you must provide accessibility, but it says that your your systems, your services must be accessible, must provide same levels of privacy and independence and access for people with disabilities so that covered entities can uh, meet the the goals of this legislation in the way that makes the most sense for their business as well as for individuals with disabilities. Thank you. That's Clark Rockfall just completing a little point about the uh, uh, major point about the Web and Software Applications Accessibility Act, and we'll have information available um, that folks can link to. I want to switch gears and come back to you, John, on another priority that's part of the 2023 uh, priorities for both organizations, I think, and that's the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Uh, this is an effort to address I gather uh, all of these various kinds of medical testing and diagnostic and therapeutic devices, but you can say a little bit more about what, what the intent of this act would be. Great. Thanks, Paul. Yes, it's to provide non-visual access to medical devices. Now, we uh, had to limit or describe that in some way. It turns out that the FDA divides medical devices into three classes. This is something that companies know well. And so uh, class one is uh, very simplistic devices that probably don't have a digital display. And class two are progressively more complicated. So this bill applies to class two and class three medical devices, which for the moment is, is most devices uh, with a digital display and says that uh, they would have to be accessible uh, to blind people, non-visually accessible. So think about the idea that you might have a blood pressure cuff or you might have a continuum glucose monitor or something of that that provides uh, an important, it's important medical information, medical safety. How could a blind person uh, utilize this to the level of safety and efficacy if it's not accessible. So this, this bill would require that they these things are accessible. It requires that they 
Food and Drug, Food and Drug Administration would go through uh, a regulatory process to describe the companies. Uh, these are the manufacturers of medical devices, exactly how to make their uh, devices non-visually accessible or what the standard would be. Uh, similar in the sense, the rulemaking process would be similar to what we described with the previous bill. And then uh, it would apply to new applications. So it's not retroactive, only to new applications. I mentioned that because that helps make sure that it's not too onerous or expensive to companies as far as existing devices. But certainly medical devices are something that are, are there's a lot of rapid development in that area. So there are a lot of new applications being submitted, which uh, once this bill was passed and the rule went into effect, uh, would apply to those new applications. This has the potential to dramatically improve the accessibility for blind people. So it's something that's really exciting, especially with the really increased amount of telehealth that people are doing. So, so much more people are doing this sort of thing from their home, which this could help with. Um, and this bill, I believe, has been introduced in this session of Congress. Yes? Yes. It's uh, HR 1326, uh, HR 1326, uh, with Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, and uh, currently has 42 co sponsors. The bill reflects some changes from the last Congress based on feedback we received from, from members of Congress and others. So uh, I think that the possibility of it getting passed in the current Congress is dramatically improved uh, as a result of some of the changes that we've made. One is the clarification that it applies to only new applications, as I just described. The other two changes are that this uh, says that if it there's an exemption that a company could file for if they thought the accessibility would result in um, a fundamental alteration of the product, and also if it was just uh, going to be so expensive that they thought it'd be an undue hardship, then they could apply for an exemption, and uh, the FDA would potentially grant it. And I should note that those exemptions are both uh, not uncommon. They're both available to communications companies as part of requirements for communication device accessibility that were that have been in place in a couple of different forms for a while. Clark, is it accurate that the American Council of the Blind is also supporting this bill and, and maybe add a comment or two? That is very accurate, Paul. Yes, this this legislation is also a priority for the American Council of the Blind. Uh, it was in the 117th Congress. It remains a priority in the 118th Congress. And as John stated, it is the bill has already been reintroduced and reintroduced on a bipartisan basis. So it's really exciting that both of the bipartisan co-chairs of the Congressional Disabilities Caucus, Representative Dingell and Representative Fitzpatrick, a Democrat and a Republican, are co-sponsors of this legislation. Uh, so by having the, the co-chairs of a major caucus supporting the legislation, we think that demonstrates the importance of this legislation uh, for our community. And as, as John stated, one of the 
I think one of the long tail benefits from the pandemic was underscoring just how important it is for everyone in the United States to be able to have access to healthcare and have access to healthcare where they are. Um, you know, that in the pandemic, transportation became a barrier for nearly all Americans or people in the United States. Well, that's existed for people with disabilities for quite some time. Access to uh, in-person medical care became a hardship for nearly all people in the United States. And that's been an issue for people with disabilities for a long time. So by making these devices accessible, uh, by giving folks access to these devices to use privately and independently in their uh, in the safety of their own homes will have a tremendous impact on our members and on our community as a whole. I couldn't agree more. And I know that, uh, for example, people with diabetes have been um, very, very out front and, and outspoken about the need for improved accessibility on, on glucose monitoring and insulin delivery systems uh, where accessibility has been a challenge. We're going to close. And I want to ask uh, both of you a quick point. You've both had uh, members in town doing legislative visits over the last couple of months, the early months of 2023. I'm going to go to you first, um, Clark. Any any quick uh, comments about what you're hearing from Congress? Are, 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 are legislators interested in these disability issues? There's, a, a, you know, I think if you read the news, you hear a lot of, of angst and anger uh, among, among members of Congress. There doesn't seem to be a lot of room for cooperation, but are you, what are you hearing from your members? Sure. So the ACB had our DC leadership conference in the beginning of March of 2023. Our members took these two priorities uh, as well as two others, the Exercise and Fitness for All Act and the Communications Video and Technology Accessibility Act to the Hill. We're still gathering feedback from those meetings, but I think one thing is clear. That was a great way to start the conversation on these priorities, uh, but it can't be the end of the conversation on these priorities. So uh, we always encourage our members and our partners to, to build those relationships with congressional staff, with their members of Congress, uh, to keep the conversation going, uh, to demonstrate our commitment to these issues. And I'd say uh, proof is in the pudding so far, as, as John stated, the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act has been reintroduced with uh, over 40 bipartisan co-sponsors. We are working with our partners for the Web Access Bill, as well as the CBTA on bill reintroduction later this year. So I think that there's often the, the misnomer that the Republicans and Democrats can't get, can't get along or always disagree. And certainly that's, that's the message that's conveyed out to the rest of the country. Uh, certainly if there's a, an election coming up and there's uh, hay to be made, but in Washington, D.C., I, I think it's pretty common for members of both parties to, to come together uh, to try to find common sense solutions to big problems. And we think that 
the two bills that we discussed today, as well as our other priorities, uh, kind of fit that mold of being you know, thought out, discussed, debated uh, potential solutions to these big problems that are facing our community. John, I'm going to ask you essentially the same question. Your members were in town as well doing meetings. And also, um, if you could, uh, I know Clark mentioned advocacy at acb.org as a way to get a good quick note into him and the, the ACB team about legislation. I don't know if NFB has a similar uh, email box of that nature, but uh, go ahead and, and if you want to provide any contact info, that would be great as well. But what what's uh, what's what are your members hearing uh, in their conversations with members of Congress? Uh, uh, very similar to what Clark said. One, I, I do want to address the you know disability issues are very bipartisan. And uh, as demonstrated with the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, the fact that that is bipartisan. And that's also another issue that we're working on. I know ACB is also is the Transformation to Competitive Integrated Employment Act. Uh, This is a bill that's introduced in both the House and the Senate that would phase out uh, subminimum wages for people with disabilities over a five-year period. It is bipartisan in both the House and the Senate. And there's been a lot of bipartisan work done on that at the state level. So uh, on these various issues, we do look forward to working um, in a bipartisan manner to improve opportunities for people with disabilities in the United States. As far as uh, our, what, what a lot of people would generically refer to as a fly-in, or a week in Washington. Our terminology here at the National Federation of Blind is our Washington seminar. That's where we have uh, this year, lucky back in person, about 500 people came to Washington, DC the first week of February. It was exciting to be back in person. I think uh, members of Congress were very excited to, to be back with constituents back in person with constituents and to be able to talk about in-person issues that would affect uh, people who live in their district or their state. Uh, It just seemed to be a lot of positive excitement on the Hill and being back in the the halls of Congress. So we um, had many productive conversations, many with uh, senior staff, many with the uh, actual elected official. Always uh, both are important, both are exciting. And we kind of, as you alluded to uh, earlier, Paul, you know, there's a two year cycle. We're in the beginning of this really, we're just three months into the 118th Congress. Congress lasts for two years. So this is uh, an important time. This is, we're, we're in the still sort of in the launch phase of legislation for this Congress and maybe say that I hope we can give you some progress reports here uh, every couple of months as we work to get these and, and other bills enacted. And how would you like people to reach out to you if somebody wants to be in touch with you at NFB? Well, let's, we do have some generic email, but let's say I'll give my email address. So it's uh, John Pare, J-P-A-R-E at NFB. Uh, Welcome to email. Love to hear from you. 
hope to have you both back to update on these and any other uh, priority topics that are happening. John Perret with the National Federation of the Blind, Clark Rockfall with the American Council of the Blind. Thank you both for joining me on the APH podcast. Thanks, Thank Paul. you. Now Paul is talking to Laura Colloy about funding and appropriations. We're talking about activities in Washington, D.C., specifically policy work that's happening. We're fairly early in the new Congress, the 118th Congress. It'll last for two years, so we're a couple of months in, and it's a good time to touch base on some of the issues that are before Congress and being looked at by the president as well. I'm thrilled today to be joined by a good friend of mine and a colleague I've worked with for many years, Laura Colloy. Laura, welcome and tell us a little bit about who you are. Hi, Paul. I'm really happy to be here today. I am a consultant, uh, but a longtime advocate and policy expert in the education and special education space. I'm also the parent of a 22-year-old son with learning disabilities. And uh, I am working with several nonprofits that are focused in the education, special education, assistive technology space. I am the policy advisor to the Assistive Technology Industry Association, ATIA, where I get to work with you directly again, which is really great. And I'm also a co-chair with the largest coalition here in Washington, D.C., for disability organizations. It's called the Consortium for Constituents with Disabilities, CCD. And I'm a co-chair on both the Education Task Force and the Technology and Telecommunications Task Force. And so we do some work there, of course, related to pre-K to 16 education. And uh, it's just really great to be here. Well, thank you. And I'm going to, I'm just going to plug that um, Laura also has a, a little bit of a March Madness connection with, with one of your other children who's a basketball player, I believe. I do. My daughter is number 23 on the Christopher Newport University captains, and she is playing in the final game on Saturday uh, in Dallas for the D3 finals and so it's pretty exciting well that of course will have happened by the time we (laughs) air so that will be exciting to hear how that goes um this is the time of year when there's a lot of attention in congress given to appropriations and funding uh they they tend to front load a lot of that work in the february march april time frame a lot of discussions and hearings some of you may know that the american printing house for the blind usually submits some kind of comments or information to the appropriations committees in Congress to describe what APH does. We receive a federal appropriation, so it's important for Congress to be aware of that work. And I think we'll have a a link in the notes uh, to some testimony uh, that I was able to provide on behalf of the American Printing House for the Blind. This was to the House Subcommittee on Labor, Health and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies. That's the way the appropriations subcommittees are divided. They're divided by federal agency. There are 12 of them. Uh, and the one that APH happens to work with, it has education as well as the departments of labor, health and human services, and then some smaller um, accounts as well uh, in that related agency category. And actually, we're going to talk a little bit more about that subcommittee. Uh, there's one in the House and Senate, so they both will be looking at 
uh, funding levels for the federal government over the next few months. And as a subcommittee making a decision, passing that up to the Appropriations Committee and then on. Um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. But a lot of that work, Laura, starts with uh, the submission by the president of the budget request for the fiscal year. Of course, fiscal 24 starts in October. So that's the work they're doing now. They're looking at uh, fiscal 24 um, appropriation and the, the president does submit a budget for that. So let's talk a little bit about the funding levels, the funding priorities and what you think is and what you see happening. Um, we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about technology and we'll talk a little bit about special ed. Those will be our two areas of focus today on the funding side. Does that sound good? Sure. So, yes, the president's budget was a little bit delayed this year. So usually a president's budget comes out in February, but this budget came from the Biden administration around March 9th. And so there is still some analysis going on and the hearings are being scheduled on Capitol Hill in both the House and the Senate. And groups, um, including all these advocacy and coalition work that we do here in DC are working to make their recommendations. And congratulations, Paul, that you got to actually go testify in person. That's really wonderful. Uh, it's a very small uh, group of folks that get to be selected for public witness day. I'm really happy that they yeah, chose you. 17 uh, witnesses. So that's a, that's a very small number of the groups that are interested in funding, of course, as you pointed out. So thank you. Yeah. And then, you know, lots of groups submit testimony and then lots of letters go up to Capitol Hill. And then there's another thing happening within members of Congress. They write these letters to appropriators called Dear Colleague Letters, and there are letters um, underway and being submitted to appropriators from the members perspective, what their priorities are. And so we're going to talk about what a few of those are in this climate. Just a little bit of context setting quickly. Remember, the House uh, turned to the turned over to the Republicans this year. They are in charge, and so there are new uh, new speaker, new chair, and ranking members in these committees. And the House Republicans have a very strong message right now. It'll be interesting to see how the negotiations ensue, but they are prepared and would like to take the appropriations funding back to fiscal year twenty two, which you know, we're in fiscal year 23 now, so they want to take it back to the prior year's funding levels, which would be about 140 billion in cuts. And so it would be, it'll be interesting to see um, what that looks like when you really need a bipartisan package coming out of the Senate to have all of this come together by a September 30 deadline, because the federal government's fiscal year starts on October 1. So just putting that in context, the House and the Senate are going to have very different processes to work this through. And I think and it's fair to say, right, that they are really working differently because the Senate very much seems to have a very bipartisan um, at least relationship among the top members, uh, all of whom are, are women uh, in, in the Senate. Yes, in fact, we have um, uh, we have all four in the House and the Senate are women working together for the first time in our nation's history. The chair of the full appropriations and the ranking are are women um, leaders in our Congress. You're correct in the Senate, uh, Patty Murray and. Uh, Susan Collins. So Patty Murray's from Washington and Susan Collins is from Maine. And they have publicly issued a press release and have reiterated over the last several weeks that they are committed to working together to use regular order, a regular process, uh, and that they will try and stick to a timeline. And 
come together with some kind of bipartisan agreement. That is um, easier said than done when there's a lot of politics around this, but having them commit at the chair and the ranking member level to do that makes it a lot more comfortable to have some tough discussions. Um, Kay Granger is the chair in the House and Rosa DeLauro, she's from Texas and Rosa DeLauro is from Connecticut. While they have a good working relationship and are very respectful toward each other, the dynamics in the house are very different. And so uh, Ms. Granger has a lot of, uh, you know, politics there with the Republicans and, and this need in the within the body to cut as much as they want to cut. And she's going to have to navigate and manage that while the Democrats want to have the highest funding levels that, you know, that they can see in the programs for women, children, families, schools, et cetera. Well, we will certainly come back later in the year and talk about whether, whether they were able to keep to that. We'll try to, we'll try to not get into too much of the Washington speak of who's who, but it is important, I think, to hear a little bit of the change because it is very different this year. But, um, Getting into some of the specific areas, there's a, a, a group that I know you work closely with is funding for uh, the uh, Technology Act, the Assistive Technology Act. Um, and maybe you can say a little bit more about that and, and, and what happens with that program and what is that program? So that program, the Assistive Technology Act programs, there, there is a program in every state. And this is a program that gets federal funding in the state to provide assistive technology to any individual with a disability and so this formula provides funds and there is also a program in each of the territories. And so the ask this year from the president is $44 million and they're currently at about a $40 million level. And so that would be a $4 million plus up. And so there is a unified message uh, both on the Hill and within the community to try and have the AT Act is what the acronym, you know, what the short uh, hand of that is to have the AT Act funded at this 44 million that's been requested by President Biden. And so we'll see if the appropriators will support that. The other program I would just mention is for specifically related to students with disabilities. The Part B money, this is the big state grant funds that come to states to provide uh, special education services to students with disabilities. That is consistently, you know, well under the funding that was promised to states when IDEA was passed in 1975. But the president has proposed a $16.3 billion level, which would be a plus up of about $2.1 billion and would help really infuse and support um, an ongoing increase to IDEA so that states can get receive those monies to support districts in providing special education. So we're watching that pretty closely. And then there are, are lots of other programs related to special education, but that is the biggest one. Part B, of course, as you said, is the is the part that funds the state's uh, provision of special education under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And it has received some increases, hasn't it, in the last couple of cycles? It has, and they are, it's to the tune of about, you know, one or two billion per year. Well, that sounds like a lot of money when you spread that across 50 states and across, you know, nearly 8 million children. It's, it's, um, it's still, it, we still need a lot more, but it is, um, we do appreciate these increases and we really are going after, you know, supporting them to, with appropriators. And I know something that a lot of us care about, of course, are, uh, special education teachers and personnel, 
Uh, and I, uh, people may not know this, but there is a, a funding provided through the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and, and other areas to help with personnel preparation. And what's going on with that funding? So we actually have a really great community in D.C. for all of the provisions in the education budget related to general educators, related to special educators, and related to the specialized personnel and instructional support uh, team, the professionals that we know are part of that team that, you know, educate our kids. And so there is a coalition called the Coalition for Teacher Quality. They work together to make recommendations to Congress for all of these programs because we know that there is a shortage across the board and we want all of these programs to be infused and we're not going to pick one over the other. And so there is this concerted effort to have the entire pipeline to be infused to help states recruit and retain a qualified workforce for their schools. Well, very good. Um, the, 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 that appropriations process is in place now. Uh, was there money included in the president's budget to increase the support for personnel uh, preparation work? Yes, in fact, um, so in personal preparation for IDEA, I'll just give you one example. There was a, a request to plus it up by $185 million so it would get a if if the president's budget was honored, it would get a substantial increase. And that is representative in that same, you know, those same types of monies are being proposed in all of the loan programs that teachers can receive. Like I said, all of the ways that we have pockets of money throughout the federal budget that do support and help states um, educate and, you know, infuse their teacher pipeline. And so we're trying to work in many of these ways to get get the personnel plussed up. One of the popular comments that you'll hear uh, around Washington and people across the country probably hear this too, is the, the saying the president's budget is always dead on arrival. And that, that tends to be true sort of in a macro perspective way, the president, whichever party, uh, and even if their party controls Congress, often the, the, some of the larger budget initiatives aren't really listened to. But I, would you agree that in some of these areas that, that aren't getting national attention, special education funding, personnel prep funding, certainly the American Printing House of the Blind Funding Tech Act, um, the president's budget does have some value because it does set a, a, a guide, a standard, a, a, a sense of what, um, what spending would be appropriate for these programs? Yes, generally the president's budget is just a recommendation, uh, but we do find in these programs for vulnerable uh, children, families, these types of programs, the domestic policy issues, the president's budget can be provide a great guide uh, for appropriators as they consider and contemplate because they will set what's called a top line number and then they have to make decisions within that top line of how to allocate all those funds. And so the president's budget can be a guide related to what those allocations can look like. So we're hopeful, you know, you have to be optimistic and you have to uh, use the tools that you have and the president's budget is one of those tools. Well, we'll certainly, I'm sure, revisit appropriations. And before we close on this topic, I'll circle back to where I started. And that's just to mention the folks that um, we've heard earlier on earlier podcasts, I should say, about this new product called the Monarch that APH has been investing in and working on the multi-line Braille 
uh, and tactile graphics device. And that's a, a large part of the increase that APH is asking for uh, for fiscal 24 is to help make sure that we're able to distribute this, uh, this device and get it into the hands of students. Uh, Braille technology, as anyone in the blindness world knows perfectly well, is, is expensive. Uh, and yet it is uh, so critical for education for students. So that's a, a large part of the request. And again, we'll have a little bit of information about that for people to know what um, the American Printing House for the Blind was seeking in the uh, fiscal 24 appropriation. I'm going to thank you, Laura, for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. There's a lot to talk about. We'll have a lot to revisit and for folks to take a look at. Um, it's a busy Congress. And even though there's a lot of partisan disagreement, um, there is a lot of work that will need to get done somehow, particularly on the appropriation side. So they're going to have to find a way to work together. I appreciate the opportunity, Paul. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Changemakers. We will have check-ins with Paul Schrader from Washington, D.C. throughout the year whenever there's news and information available. So be sure to listen as we continue 2023. I've also put links in the show notes to all the house bills his colleagues mentioned and additional information and email addresses in the show notes. So be sure to check those out as well. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Changemakers. Be sure to look for ways you can be a changemaker this week.